So welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks, um, where we are today uh, visited by uh, Luke Keogh, who's a uh, senior curator at the National Wool Museum in Australia, which is a museum I would very much like to visit, uh, to be honest. Um, and he's going to talk about his book, The Wardian Case. So I'm just going to leave it over to you, Luke. Um Thank you very much for having me. Um, first up, I just want to, um, I'm Australian, as you can hear, uh, acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, uh, the Wadarong people of the Kulin Nation on which um, I live and work. And I recognize their continuing connection to land, water and community and pay respects to elders past and present and emerging. Um, okay, thank you very much for having me and um, thank you for making it a convenient time for Australians. So um, let's talk about the Wardian case. I'm not sure how much everyone knows about the Wardian case. Dolly said I wasn't allowed to have slides, which is fine, uh, but I did bring props. So, um, and I'm assuming they're allowed. So I will start with what's just next to me. This is a replica Wardian case. I know I have um, colleagues from my, um, colleagues from Q here. This is a, a, an exact one quarter size one that they have in their collection at Q, as you can see. So everyone just knows what this box kind of is. We're in the greenhouse. Um, I should say it's like a miniature greenhouse, really. It's made of timber. It's got sides that are sloped. Can everyone see that? Which kind of turn it? This is fun. We can turn it. It's kind of sloping like this. It's got sides like this. It's got um, some beams under here. And it's got glass on the inside. Um, I've got Perspex, obviously I travel around. It's like, um, you know, I'm like a traveling salesman telling people about this uh, Wardian case. But, um, so this is it. This is what used to happen. So what is it? And um, that's what it is. And when was it invented? So in 1829, um, an amateur naturalist named Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward, he did an experiment in his house. He buried the chrysalis of a moth inside a bottle and he closed it up and he tightened the lid and he was waiting for the moth to hatch. Along the way, when he was uh, waiting for that moth to hatch, he also had in there some um, soil and other things. And he realized that not only, well, the moth hatched and then he let it go. And then he looked inside, he was like, wow, look what's in here. There's these little ferns that are growing and a few little grasses growing. The thing that really got his attention was these little ferns. So Ward was a interesting, man he lived he was a doctor he was and he lived at Wellclose Square in London which in 1829 was a very polluted um, area just close to the St Catherine docks and so what he was surprised by was this fern that started growing in this bottle was uh, it wasn't able to be grown outside in his garden that he was trying to grow and so he went well wait up if I can grow it in this bottle what does that mean so to make a long story short, he continued these experiments for a very long time. The fern inside the bottle lasted for nearly eight years, I think, before the lid rusted and then he replaced it with another experiment. But he also started other bottle experiments. And the bottle experiment turned into the case experiment. And then he had all these indoor plants growing all around his house and they were surviving in this very polluted London air in the early 19th century. He started to expand the idea and he turned them into um, boxes such as this. He was also a really interesting chap in the sense that he was really well connected. He was really well connected to natural history circles. He was really well connected to uh, nursery owners, in particular one, uh, George Lodges, who lived, who was at Hackney. 
And so in about 1833, he and Lodgers got together and they said, well, this bottle experiment, these, these cases that you've made for your house and your dining room and these experiments, these could do something else. They could help us to move plants around the world. And so what was most interesting is that in the early 19th century, moving plants around the world was quite difficult, especially live plants. So you can send seeds, but to move live plants is kind of hard. Um, you could use a box, you needed a sailor to water the plants while they're on the voyage. You had other issues such as salt water affecting the plants and all these sorts of things. Anyway, 1833, he and Lodgers pack a case, maybe a little bit dissimilar to this one, and they send it to Australia. And the plants survive the journey. It was a long journey. It was the longest journey then known to be able to send arrives in Sydney, the plants were flourishing at the Botanic Garden, the curator at the Botanic Gardens told Ward. Wonderful. And so he packed more plants in it and sent them back to London. They went through snow, they went through boiling temperatures at the equator. I think when they were coming up the Thames, it was, uh, it was very cold. And so when they got to the St. Catherine Docks, Ward and his friend Lodiges walk on down there and they see these plants surviving in it. And they're like, wow. And so it's called the Wardian case, named after Ward, the inventor, let's say. But the real person who is probably really important in this early stage is George Lodiges, because pretty much soon after that experiment, Lodiges put into circulation about 500 of these cases. And he was a nurseryman in probably one of the most popular nurseries in Europe at that time. Um, and the most um, widely regarded for exotics. And so him using these cases was also a testament to how successful they were as a technology, let's say. And one really interesting example that, um, that I found in the archives, which I kind of find a, a good example of showing how uh, these technologies in natural history travel is that, so one of the first cases Lodiges sent was to um, Nathaniel Wallach, who was at Calcutta, who was the Botanic Garden there. And Wallach saw this case and he, was, he thought, wow, this is, this is interesting. And so he, he replicated the cases and sent them to a, a, a Wardian case full of plants to his colleagues at Paris, at the Jardin des Plants. And so then they see these cases, wow, these cases are interesting. And then they send them to a nursery owner in France. And so we see these connections flowing. And then this is how this idea of a technology spreads. I'll leave the sort of invention for our question time, we can, there's many, many questions we can have flowing from this. One of the approaches I've taken in the book is to do probably two things. I've stepped a little bit aside from the natural history crazes of um, the 19th century, in particular Britain, and taken a more global view of all of this. Um, clearly I'm Australian, I'm probably interested in this Australian journey, but also these other global journeys. And the other thing I was also inspired by is um, from our colleagues in the history of technology is to look at the, how, how are these technologies used? Who uses them? Who are these gardeners that are using them? And how is this traveling? Um, let's say the use-based history of both um, uh, David Edgerton and, um, and, and as well, Ruth L. Dunsold's work uh, as well. So, and this has inspired me to look at not only that this is a technology, this moment of invention, but also this longer history of how these things um, are invented and traveled. So two probably important points. I know I only have a very short period of time. One is that, well, 
the invention of the Wardian case, if we look back the previous 150 years, was sort of incrementally coming over a period of time. One important point that I probably should have mentioned earlier, and this is a key point of the Wardian case, is that when you put plants inside, airtight, um, almost airtight. And that inside this case then creates a micro environment, let's say. So sunlight hits the sides in these glass sides, and then inside then pers perspiration comes down the sides of the glass, which then feeds the plants which are planted inside, which allows them to continuously grow inside this micro environment. And so that was the important point. And so earlier on, the previous 150 years, there was cases that look similar to this. There are other cases that um, may have been just boxes. There were cases that were open. And so part of the book, I track some of these early inventions. So we see that Ward is part of this longer history of invention. But also probably more interestingly for me is that um, if this was a technology that had lasted just in Ward's lifetime, so he passed away in 1867, 1869, I apologize, late 1860s, let's say, um, he passes away in that period of time, but it, the most intensive use of the Wardian case as a technology for moving live plants happens in the next half century. And that's quite fascinating in a global sense because um, of course, uh, shipping increases, we can move more plants around the globe, but other things start to implement this. Nurseries become really popular around the world. And so sending plants out from European-based nurseries to colonies was quite important. Moving economic plants for, uh, for plantations and other sorts of things. So a couple of them I have in here, I have tea in here that was significantly moved in Wardian cases. We have coffee in here, another important one. One important thing about coffee was that it was not only coffee had clearly been moved for quite a period of time beforehand, but it was also the movement of coffee rust, which the Wardian case mobilized because of live plants. Um, and then we've got a fern in here, of course. Um, and so the Wardian case over the last, it was probably in use for about 100 years. Over the last half century of its use, it increases and increases and increases in the number of cases that are being sent around the globe. But then we have this dramatic end to it in about the 1920s, going on to about the 1930s-ish, is that the Wardian case is, stops being used. And so I'll just stop there for a second and go backwards. Part of my interest in the Wardian case was I was curating this exhibition in Munich called um, Welcome to the Anthropocene. And I put the Wardian case on show in that exhibition. And I was just really fascinated that there's, at, at the, that point in time, I could only locate five Wardian cases worldwide. Since the research has been ongoing, we can now locate um, 13, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, I saw you in there. Um, but there's about seven at Q, a couple of them are sort of um, replica type ones, and there's a couple of earlier ones. But in a curatorial sense, for something that there was thousands, if not tens of thousands of these boxes in operation, um, to have only a handful or two handfuls is, is very rare. And so part of my journey is to find, well, why is it so rare? And that's the ending part of this book is that, so why do we stop using Wardian cases and how, do, how does their demise come about? Well, it comes about largely because of quarantine. 
quarantine restrictions placed on um, moving live plants. In particular, what does this box move? It's not just moving plants, it's a microenvironment. So it's moving environments around the world. And so what comes with that? It comes with, well, it comes with great things such as economic plants, but it also comes with problematic things such as invasive species, invasive worms, invasive uh, pathogens and um, plant pests along the way. And so what we see is that this long history of um, plant exchange around the world from being very popular and very important, very extensive, to then just dramatically stopping because we realize, wow, we've moved all this stuff that we shouldn't have and so we need to stop. Um, I'll probably end there on a, um, with that much. I, I was brief for 15 minutes, so let's end it there. Um, I can talk for much longer and go into much more detail, but um, let's um, keep that as the overview. Unless you want me to keep going, of course. But um. oh, Thank you very much, Luke. What a great introduction to this uh, fascinating technology. Um, I was, I'll just uh, start uh, with a, a few questions of my own as folks start to write in the chat um, that they have questions. Um, and I was wondering about the size here. So how yep. big did a Wardian case get? So how large of plants could one transport? Yeah, so we're expecting to, if the one, the little one here, don't have much judgment on it, but this one, the actual one in Kew Gardens, um, we have some colleagues from Kew here who correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it, it's about um, twice, so it's about two feet wide um, in American terms, of, um, almost about 800 millimetres wide, and then length is probably, we're pushing to about one, 1 1.2 metres, around about. But the really interesting thing about the, and then we've got the height, so you've got a little box on the bottom here which holds your soil, and then you can build it into a roof. So he's looking at something that's probably up to about the waist height of a, of a sailor, of an average size sailor. Um, one important point to make here is that um, Ward never, um, it was this technology that everyone said, okay, you need a Wardian case, but they were often built on site, let's say. And so building them on site meant there's very various versions of them. And uh, so you could build them as big as you wanted or as small as you wanted. One example, Joseph Hooker um, traveled on the Ross expedition and they had really big ones made that were almost as tall as a person and they were really heavy. They took two or three sailors to move them. And these ones, a few of them made them back to Kew, but a few of them also got thrown overboard or just went missing. And, and so when you make something that's, a, let's say, a transport um, box, then uh, making sure that is um, transportable is an important part. And so if you think about the sides as well, I'll just add that inside it, then you've got at least three cubic feet of soil, which then also prompts um, various things moving in it. Great. Um, Mark, you have a question. Yes. So thank, thank you very much, Luke. And uh, really, since you started your work, Wardian cases have become quite famous and journalists <laughs> always 
turning up at, at queue wanting to film them and talk about them for ABC, <laughs> for BBC World Service, for Radio 4, etc, etc. And they always arrive with the Wardian case as a good news story about human ingenuity, probably a list of ornamental plants, how important they were for British gardens. And then we have an awkward little shuffle where I say, well, there's more to the story indentured labour, plantations, global inequality, and we, we try and find a way of, uh, of, of rounding out the story a little bit more. So I'm curious to know if a journalist arrives, as, as they will be doing on your doorstep, and wanting to know about your view about the Wardian case and its global impact, well, how, would you, how would you frame that? Um. Great question. We should also say Mark is the um, curator of economic botany at Kew Garden. So um, he has been um, a, a close colleague throughout this process. But uh, to answer your question, Mark, that's an interesting one. And I do agree that um, those journalists have already come knocking, um, thinking this is a wonderful invention and it's, um, this is this great story. And, and of course, that's how I had to spend half of this uh, presentation telling this wonderful story because it's, it is pretty interesting. Um, but like you say, I think one important part of what we do as, as historians and people interested in environmental change is to just say, well, when we move these things, these plants, uh, this soil, these sorts of things, there's consequences to it. And so understanding those consequences is um, also really important. But I guess the last um, example, and I use this in the book, is of the cactoblastus moth. And so um, the to move, does everyone know about the cactoblastus, the cactoblastus moth um, was the moth that was used to feed on um, prickly pear that had run out of control in Australia. And so to find a solution for that, they turned to biological control. And biological control says you find a, a species of um, insect or some such that will feed on um, this plant or something like that to help you solve your problems. In Australia, the, the prickly pear was a, a major issue, people walking off the land, and um, they used the cactobustus moth from um, Argentina, it was around Texas mainly that they found them, but also the, the, the key one was from Argentina, and they shipped them to Australia in Wardian cases. And they used an extensive number of Wardian cases, I'm talking tens of thousands of Wardian cases over a 10-year period. This is twice as much as what Q moved in about a century, right? And they resolved the issue of, um, of moving, uh, of, of the prickly pear by moving these moths. But what was fascinating is once they'd resolved the issue for the next five to 10 years, they continued to send insects in Wardian cases just to see what would happen and just to see how important they were. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that the, if we start to look at these histories of moving things around the world, we start to see that there's very good stories, but there's also some not so good stories that we should start to listen to because they're important. Uh, thanks. Well, this goes very well to a question that um, Will Tattersdale um, ask um, because you have the moths where people intentionally bring this insect in, in the cases. So what about unintentional um, insects or other pests. You mentioned the coffee rust, for example. Um, so are there some specific outbreaks that are linked to Wardian cases? 
Yes, um, there's quite a few, and I think um, hoping that more people start to um, go into them. Probably one key one, and is the um, invasive flatworm called Bipalium cuens, which is named after Q. So they found this flatworm in the greenhouses at Kew Gardens, and they originally thought it was from Australia because so many plants came from Australia to Kew, but it turns out that it was um, from uh, from Cambodia, what we would know today as Cambodia, that sort of Asian uh, region, and so. Um, the worm is um, the spread of flatworms around the world is a really big problem. Um, one of the um, scientists who has been studying them, I want to know the specific name of the scientist that study worms, I should know that, but um, has said that um, he, he's described the, the, this flatworm, we generally know it as a hammerhead flatworm, I think most gardeners would know it as that, um, as a cosmopolitan traveller, which is um, quite funny. We've got this worm that's a cosmopolitan traveller, but we know that the spread of worms was important one. The other spread is um, soil diseases. So there's no specific evidence of it of being able to locate it to a specific warning case moved at this point in time. But um, certainly the movement of um, plant diseases through soil has been a really important one. And so that's another one. But also the research in coffee rust, then I would recommend looking at Stuart McCook's work because he has looked into warning cases for that very reason to locate ideas of um, coffee rust as well. Great. Um, Carolyn had a question about the co-production of the Wardian case then, thinking about the Wardian case as not coming from one inventor, um, but rather as a co-produced uh, technological artifacts, so with Ward and Lodges and, and others. Um, so can you say more about that co-production? Yeah, I think um, uh, I'll answer that by saying that we need to understand these scientists operated in a network. Um, a lot of research has been done over that the last two decades, I would say, but the two main things that Ward did, one was that he sort of hit upon this idea of the enclosed case. So you close up plants in a case, that's the technological um, inventive part of it, which was quite important. But the other part of it was to spread that knowledge and to um, talk to different people about this and to be in amongst networks in which this idea could spread very quickly. And so I think, yes, what Carolyn's asking is totally true that um, co-invention is really important because it's not just that Ward came up with the idea, it's that this idea was able to spread throughout various networks. And the more interesting part of Ward and as well Lodges as well is that they, they're amateur naturalists. Lodges has a nursery, so he has a, a commercial interest, but Ward was a, just a naturalist, a, a passion for natural history. He was a doctor, so he was um, very busy all the time in his doctor's surgery, but this was his passion on the side. So that he could spread this knowledge to important scientists such as the hookers at Kew or to um, uh, Asa Gray over at Harvard, other people like that, then it was that he was connected and that there was a time in which amateurs and, sci and professional scientists could share knowledge and co-produce in that way. And so um, these days it would be interesting if an amateur scientist, amateur naturalist fed information to a scientist. I'm just, yeah, anyway, I'm going off into engine. But yes, totally, um, these things do happen in a co-produced state. We also need to know that people on the ground as well were sort of taking Ward's ideas and going, well, what does this warding case look like? How do I create that? 
and these sorts of things. And there's a fascinating example of taking the Wardian case, um, uh, Robert Fortune and a few other um, people traveling in Japan went to carpenters in Japan and said, can you make me a Wardian case? And they said, what is this thing? You're crazy. And so they had to sketch it out and make the case. And then there's even an example of them not wanting to put the glass inside the Wardian case because they knew it would break and all these sorts of things. So the person who asked them to do it had to then go to a different person to make these cases anyway. But they made them so well that when they got to Q, they then got sent on to the next place. So interesting. Yeah, I think that kind of, um, you know, the user taking it and moving it in different ways um, is really interesting. The one place where I've seen uh, Wardian cases show up um, in some work I did on early aquariums. Right? The early yeah, aquariums are, are modeled on and use Wardian cases as their starting point, even though Wardian cases are not intended to, to move liquids, but that's, that's where people take it. Uh, as concept. Um, Ward's daughter was married to the inventor of the Wardian case as well. So anyway, that's an interesting aside. Uh, the inventor of the, one of the inventors of the aquarium. So. Of the aquarium, right, 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 exactly. Um, and uh, so we have a question from Libby about the quarantine. So the end of the Wardian cases. So what kind of uh, quarantine restrictions were these? Were these coming, I guess, from the, the colonies? Uh, if you will, Australia, New Zealand saying, oh, we don't want your stuff, or was it coming from Europe where things were going to? Um, and along those lines, she also just mentions uh, in a comment that Jody Frawley has an article on prickly pear and cactoblastis moth, if anyone's interested yes. in, in reading that. But so this comment about quarantine and, and how did that close it off? Well, how did that, you know, what were the concerns there? Right. Um, I should say, so in the book, there's um, a couple of uh, example, let's say, countries that I've looked at. Obviously, Britain is an um, important one, but also um, the other one is I've looked a lot at the United States. I was based there for a while when I was completing the book, and it offers a really interesting example about the Wardian case. So very early on, they adapted it. The Wilkes expedition in the 1840s used the Wardian case, and then they went on... Um, those plants came back and were the founding collections of the United States Botanic Gardens. Near the end of this cycle of quarantine is also a really interesting example where you look at the United States Department of Agriculture. And so they had these two competing units. One was the Plant Exploration Department and one was the uh, Bureau of uh, Entomology. And the Bureau of Entomology gained um, quite enormous traction because of um, uh, trying to control the spread of invasive insects primarily, but also plant pathogens and other sorts of things. And then you have um, people such as David Fairchild who are out searching for new plants to bring them back. Both were equally successful, one in stopping problems coming to the United States, the other one going to find important germplasm for the, um, the spread of important crops such as soybean or other sorts of things. With Quarantine, I guess the United States is this great example where they ended their days, they'd get a warding case in, they would take the plants out, and then they would burn them. And that was their policy, to burn these warding cases, to burn all soil and everything associated with them. And that brought about this conflict in about the 1920s, 1930s, between plant transportation, plant exploration, and 
quarantining these um, invasive plants off to protect your own species at home uh, or your own um, plantations at home, in particular for the United States. And so this creates this important, um, I guess, example of environmental management and this conflict between uh, uh, quarantine on the one hand and finding new species on the other. And this is probably the end of the Wardian Cases era. Um, really great example of this conflict within the USDA is by the late uh, Philip Polly, who's a historian of science and technology in, um, his, in his book, as well as in, I forget the name of the article, but it's in ISIS, I know that one. Anyway, I hope that answers the question. And then from the United States, I think other nations such as Australia and New Zealand um, started to replicate those examples as well. Great. Uh, Dominique, you have a question. Yes, thank you very much. And thanks for a great introduction to a book that I hope to read soon, because I'm also interested in the history of devices and tools and uh, instruments in the kind of uh, history of science. And I'm particularly interested in a entomological uh, instrument and also the kind of connections between the images that we have and the actual objects in museums. So I was wondering, because uh, the, some of the, the examples I found were um, replications of the actual instrument for museum um, purposes. So I wonder if the Edwardian, uh, uh, sorry, of the Wardian cases that are out there, if they are actually real, like if they were used or if they were produced again for museums, have you ever checked that? And then do the images match the, the examples? Thank you. Okay, um, yeah, great question. Um, well, then you might like my replica just sitting here, but um, the, um, the, the um, to answer your question is that I think more research needs to be done on some of the cases, but we certainly know that um, at least um, a number of them at Q uh, cert have certainly been used because they have stamps on them and these sorts of things. Ones that have been used but then went on to have other purposes such as a coin donation box, correct me if I'm wrong, Caroline Mark, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, and so the other one is a 18th, uh, is a predates the Wardian case actually, a beautiful one in Paris, but it is was clearly used um, there. And the, there's one in Australia, which um, it was used, um, it was discovered only recently, but um, for much of its life, it, it was used as a dog kennel. And so when then got donated to a museum, they said, well, what is this thing? And then they contacted Mark and I, and then they said, uh, well, it's a Wardian case and it's really rare. And they're like, oh, wow. So now it's around, it's got a glass case around it and all this sort of stuff. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's quite funny. Anyway, but probably to answer in a short way, your question is that, there's not too many replicas that I've seen, but certainly the, one, the replicas that you see at um, Chelsea Physic Garden, at Singapore Botanic Gardens, at, um, I'm trying to think of examples. Um, there are example ones of them replicating Wardian cases and then putting plants inside them so that they can use them as props and these sorts of things. Do they match the photos that we have of them? Yes, I think so, because there's generally a pretty good um, photo record of them. Um, and yeah, so I think, Yes and no, if, if I can answer your question specifically, but I'm interested to learn about your entomological box. So. All right, we have a, a question from Kate Tesler, uh, Tesher, um, who's researching a book on the palm house at Kew. 
So she had discovered that in the 1850s, a Coco de Mer was sent to Kew from Mauritius by Rensselaerslis Bauer. And he first intended to enclose the barrel in which the seedling was planted in glass, like an improvised warding case on this barrel, but it grew too large. So she was wondering about this kind of improvisation with warding cases in different shapes and sizes than the typical one that you have there. Okay, um, yeah, um, well, I would say answer yes, there was improvisation. So if you, one of the reasons why you had to move a live plant is let's say a plant is not, um, is not in seed, so you cannot collect it seed. So if you really want that plant, it's the only one, then you will have to take it out of the ground and then move it. And so how do you move it? So if your plant was a little large, then you potentially then have to make a bigger case for it. Or you could trim it off and then cross your fingers and hope it survives the journey. Um, but so, yes, I think they did improvise in some ways. I also think that um, sometimes a bit early on, they tried to put too many plants in there or tried to do too many things or amateur gardeners tried to water them too much. And so then they would just arrive as a soggy mess or something such as this. Um, but yeah, I think the adaptation of the watering case in various ways becomes really interesting um, as you watch it move on and how people use it. And I should also add that clearly I'm only looking at one side of the watering case throughout my research. It's not, um, there is the other side of it, which is this beautiful, what we'd know as a terrarium today. And so there's many different versions of a terrarium to fit with a, um, the style of your parlor or the style of your lounge room and these sorts of things. So there's, so on the one side, the beautiful side, and then yes, there's many different versions of it. Um, so yes and no, can I answer it that way? I think, um, What's kind of interesting is that thank you. These um, multiple ways. Of <laughs> oh no, we don't hear you, Kate. You're like breaking up in your sound. Yeah, that's all right. We'll uh, we'll go on then. Um, so, uh, Anna Svensson had a question um, about. Um, References to plants rotting in transit. So she's been working on um, also this kind of uh, movement of, of plants. And so she was wondering how widespread of a problem that was since you have these closed, uh, closed cases. Um, and she also wondered that in this transit process, was there kind of a, an effort at standardization if you if you were sending a bunch of something like you mentioned the moths in cases would you make them so that the cases could somehow stack inside the ship nope but um hold on just a second yeah there you are go ahead luke um yeah, great question. Uh, the answer is yes. Um, let's do the, the stacking and movability of them first, and then we'll go from there. So um, the top of this box is quite flat. Can everyone see that? Um, the Q1 is a bit more pointed. There is in, um, at, uh, in Paris at the um, Jardin Tropicale, I think it was, that moved most of the plants to their colonies. They um, designed on a, a much flatter top and they would have the sides a bit wider and they would stack them on top of each other, which is um, a common method. So you can still get light in the sides. 
and these sorts of things. Um, certainly with the ones that moved the moths, they were stacking them because they were moving so many cases and their point wasn't really to fully keep the plants alive. They were just trying to move moths that would feed on these, um, the, these cacti anyway. So they didn't mind too much. Um, but yes, there was inventions made along the way to then um, make them stackable or movable, or you could move more of them, these sorts of things. To go to the rotting question, that takes us much further back to the earlier times in the early 19th century is that, and probably more the pragmatics of moving plants is that when you move plants, um, it's not just the lead botanist at a major botanical institution that is packing these cases and moving them, it's actually a gardener somewhere who's working for someone. And it's, well, it's not a plant explorer. Well, it could be, but very often not. It's not a plant explorer who's gone out on this um, wonderful journey and who has written up a wonderful book about it. It's actually probably local laborers who are doing the packing for them as well. Um, there's examples of this in the literature. And so um, many of those people, how they packed plants or even a different example, when you pack plants in different locations, you might overwater them or do different things to them. So there's many, many examples of plants rotting in transit. Um, probably the most famous one is um, uh, the cinchona plants that uh, were moved from South America to India in the 1860s. And they were, um, they arrived first uh, with, I wanna say Wickham, but Wickham moved the rubber. It's uh, with Markham and um, they're all rotted on site. And it was quite a big failure. And so that's one, one key example, I think. But um, yes, certainly overwatering and, and overwatering and a lack of knowledge of what these cases are and the lack of knowledge of gardeners who may want to over, or amateurs that don't have much gardening knowledge, actually, I should say the opposite thing, that overwater because they don't really know how to use plants. They're just kind of guessing and these sorts of things. So a lot of rotting and quite a few failures. So, you know, it was an important invention that moved a lot of really important plants, but there was also an opposite side. All right, I wanted to ask a question too. Um, so I wonder if you could say a bit more about the, the warding case as an Anthropocene object. I mean, you mentioned the Munich exhibit, uh, which is where I saw it first time. I'd never heard about them before. Uh, and yeah, I didn't realize you were the one behind it, so good job. But, uh, but after I saw it there, I started noticing it like references to the warding case show up in scholarship and in media all over. So, so is this just an ex like an example of my ignorance and then suddenly I start noticing it when it's on my radar or do you see that being present in that exhibit and getting connected to the, the Anthropocene discussion did something with uh, awareness of, of the warding case? Um, good question. Um, I, I'll probably just explain the exhibit in, in Munich is that um, I had a model of a shipping container, clearly shipping container, movement of goods around the world. Um, uh, the diesel engine had all these Anthropocene connections. But importantly, as a historian, there are many historians on the teams that to take a bit people a bit further back. And so if we look further back than the shipping container, we do have these other methods of moving things that were quite significant and had a major impact. And so that was one of my motivations. I came across this box and then you know, like everyone, I was like, oh, wow, it was invented by this guy. He was an amateur, oh, this is great. Um, but 
you know, that, that was, I, I want to juxtapose these two things next to each other. You had an earlier method that was equally, had equal impact, and then you have a later method, which you know, is quite crazy. But then to answer the second part of your question, why is it popping up in all this research and scholarship? Look, I, I don't know. I, I think maybe it was on your radar a little bit. I think that, that the story ends, uh, lends itself to be communicated again and again. Um, and it's an easy one to pick up. And part of the motivation of writing a, a book length monograph about this thing is to actually probably try and expand this story um, prior to 1829 by 150 or 200 years and post-1829 by 100 years. And so that we have a long history of this invention, which is really um, quite an important way of looking at this thing. And so that's probably one of my motivations of, of doing it. Um, but, you know, equally, I can capture it in 15 minutes, as we've just seen. Um, maybe not so well, but, you know. Um, the other side of it, and I saw Libby had popped up in the chat that, yes, it's, it's wildly popular with contemporary artists. Um, it's, um, you know, it, it's almost like, I, I, I think after the book, I've probably write a great article in art history on its use by contemporary artists. And one of the, as well as being contacted by journalists, also regularly contacted by contemporary artists to interpret this, um, the Wardian case, because it, it's got these things, it's, it, it's tangible, it's got plants, it can be used in all different ways. There's a building in Melbourne that's now being built, that's kind of modeled on the Wardian case somehow. It's, um, there's various examples. Um, was it at the Venice Biennale a few years ago that there was the introduction or one in Florence? I'm not sure, but you know, many people have used this idea. So I think, and this was a bit about Ward as well, and goes back to the roots of the story. It's not just an object. It's, you know, it, 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 it's a story about how we move plants, but it's a story about technology, technological movement and the spread of species around the world. And so that helps. Well, I think that's a very nice segue into uh, Leslie Head's question. Um, could you tell us a bit about the writing process? So how did you decide which threads or narrative to carry through this book? Um, yeah, great question. Thank you, Leslie. Um, I, I, uh, it, it was, it has been quite a while ago. So, um, the, the book has been in the works for quite some time, um, which is great. Um, the writing process, clearly you've got this invention, you've got this story that captures people. And so that is, um, clearly your intro, uh, your, your hook to begin this, um, journey. But, as I just said before, is that I, I really want to capture this, this longer history of this invention to show its uses, to show the people that have, the many hands that have used plants and used these cases. And so to capture that, it generally fo follows a chronological order in the sense that there is segues. And I also wanted to bring into tension Ward's life because it's named after him, Wardian Case, and the, the ongoing impact of this case beyond his life. And so that's probably how the writing process came into it. As well as there's this really cool thing where the first warning case was moved to Australia. And then really the last, the biggest transport of cases were moved to Australia for these moths. So there's kind of this arc, but I'll let you look at it. I'd love to hold a copy of the book in front of everyone, but um, this uh, one of the not so bad thing, well, the book has been delayed numerous times in the publication. So due to, publishing has been closed and all these sorts of things, but you know, that's the least of our worries right now, I think. 
Yes. Um, so in thinking about this movement of, you know, the case all over the place and back and forth between um, Australia and South Africa and, and South America and Q and how do you tie this to a history of colonialism then um, and imperialism as a, as a concept um, in this period in the book? Uh, yeah, um, of course, colonialism and imperialism were um, very important in, in, in the work. Not only the earlier forms of it, uh, with moving plants in the 1840s or so, but also in the period of high imperialism. So we see this, the, one of the key moments afterwards death, there's two. One of them is for the nursery trade, and the second one is for a period of high imperialism. And this is fascinating in the sense that you have this invention that is over 50 years old. And then in a period of high imperialism, it's all of a sudden emerges again in the 1880s, 1890s as this invention to transform colonies. And this is um, as much a, a visual impact in, in um, colonial journals and these sorts of things coming out of Paris and coming out of... Um, uh, Germany in particular. So Germany is a great example of um, as they started to take colonies and spread out and take plantations in various locations, one of the core images that they used to show their plantations and what they were doing was pictures of Wardian cases being travelled uh, to their various locations, whether that's in uh, Samoa or whether that's in uh, Tanzania or different places like this. And so that is quite an important part of um, this case is that it was used to move plants for plantations and um, to appropriate people and land around the world. So it's quite important, as well as educating colonists to then be able to move plants. So we know a lot of the botanic gardens in um, European capital cities had um, plantation um, gardens where they would show people various plants that would grow in different locations. Berlin's a great example of that. So if you're about to head off to one of your colonies, you would go and you'd say, okay, I can grow rubber or I can grow uh, coffee or these sorts of things. Then you would go to the place and then you would ask for a Wardian case full of coffee, let's say, and then it'd be sent to you and then you'd propagate it from there or something such as this. Yeah. Probably the French have the greatest imagery about Wardian cases being moved and those sorts of things. I'm only allowed props tonight, not... Uh, yeah, so I mean, that's, it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's great to think about how, um, you know, you have both kind of personal interest, you know, in, in, in Ward wanting to, you know, be able to grow some plant or move a plant, but it turns into really an entire system of, of moving plants, both um, for economic reasons, for ideological reasons about you know, owning the colonies and the colonies having what was in uh, the motherland. Um, so, you know, there, there's these levels of something that's actually so simple in a way. I mean, right, it's a box and it has glass and, and it has a top. Um, so I, I, I love those kind of simple technology stories that show how they move into society and can actually change things in radical ways. As well as within colonies, so it would be sent to a colony, be set up in, in such a location, and then at that place be sent out even further. So you might get it to a key location in Calcutta, and then they'd be sent out within that, um, within that region as well. 
Great. I'm just checking to make sure we have uh, if anyone else has any questions on um, the chat. I guess um, Martin had a question about the connection between greenhouse design at the time and Wardian cases. So how do, how do those relate? Because yeah, it's it's a little greenhouse. So. Uh, yeah, great question. It's probably more. Um, I think greenhouse design was um, moving further ahead um, than when this was uh, created. Um, but they they are um, moving together. Um, the other interest is that the people who are making greenhouses were key users of the Woody and K. So um, probably a good example is um, is Cavendish uh, or. The Duke, and Devon, the Duke of Devonshire and his key um, designer, let's say, or head of gardens, Joseph Paxton, who then went on to design the, um, uh, uh, the uh, Crystal Palace. Um, their first um, major greenhouse, they had to fill it with plants. And so they sent a young botanist to India to then collect plants. And he arrived back with really important plant. Um, uh, stumps me last part of it is nobilis. Um, the pride of Burma is its common name, but um, you know, and, and a whole range of orchids and these sorts of things to fill out these cases. So probably, I guess the, the key people make designing greenhouses in Britain were also um, part of this group, I guess we would say. And then they also had to fill their greenhouses, which is an important part of them getting plants to greenhouses. We also need to think about not major big greenhouses, but also the rise of the middle class in the 1840s, 1850s in Britain and Europe. Uh, that warranted having a greenhouse as part of your um, common uh, extension to your house. And so then you also then had to fill that with plants. So the rise of the middle class was also an important um, motivation for nurseries to become even bigger and movement. All right, so uh, we are reaching the end of our time. So uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. The chat is pretty lively with uh, tips and references and other discussion, which is good. Uh, so we'll make sure to take a look there before you leave. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, to thank Lukten for talking about uh, his book, The Wardian Case, and to all of you for coming.